They thought of things I wish I had thought of first. They were that good. Those are words from Charles Jackson, author of The Lost Weekend, on Wilder and Brackett's adaptation of their novel. Welcome to Seeing Faces of Movies. This is a podcast where each month I focus on the works of a different director or cinematographer, and each week I invite a guest on to discuss a film and the artist's filmography. I'm your host, Felicia Maroney, and today we're talking about Billy Wilder's 1945 film, The Lost Weekend. So a brief synopsis of the film, the desperate life of a chronic alcoholic is followed through a four-day drinking bout. The film stars Ray Milan as Don Burnham, Jane Weinman as Helen St. James, Philip Terry as Wick Burnham, and Howard De Silva as Nat. It's written by Billy Wilder and Charles Brackett, adapted by Charles Jackson's book, cinematography by John F. Seitz, edited by Dwayne Harrison, and music by Miklos Rosa. Today I'm joined by Greg Kleinschmidt. Thanks for joining me. Hey, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So Greg is the host of Seen and Heard, a film podcast, and we met through the Royal Film Club, which he founded, and I attend basically every week. But I'd like for him to tell you a little bit more about what he does and his podcast. So do you want to let us know what the podcast is about and you know what your relationship is to cinema and to Billy Wilder specifically? Oh, boy. Yeah. So yeah, I do co-host a podcast, Seen and Heard, that I do with my co-host, Jackie, that we've been doing for about a year and a half now. It started because we realized that no one was like properly covering the sight and sound greatest films list. Like there was a podcast on the AFI list and there was podcasts on other lists. The, you know, the most respected, I think, list is sight and sound. And so that's what we do. We go through the list and um, slowly I push to expand it a little bit to do films like not on the list because I have, you know, they tend to be such, you know, prestigious films, even though like Pink Flamingos and stuff is on the, the, the new 250, which is very cool anyway. And stuff like Suspiria. So like Argento is now in the top 250. So yeah, I do Seen and Heard. And uh, yeah, like you said, run, run the Royal Film Club. My relationship to cinema is, uh, God, <laughs> just always loving movies my whole life. I think growing up loving movies and then probably early high school, like getting into like proper films, like being exposed to like international cinema. Like Fellini was an early one for me. David Lynch was an early one. God, Bergman. And I feel like the first time you see some of those, like I remember the first time I saw eight and a half, the first time I saw blue velvet and stuff like you're never the same. And I was like, Oh God, like movies can be so much more than I thought. And so that took like a lifelong obsession and turned it into something, uh, more sustainable, I guess, uh, in terms of like wanting to pursue this as a career and just wanting to be around other film people and talking about movies constantly. So that that's kind of me. I always find it interesting to find out when people got into films in a more serious way. And there's always kind of that gateway, either director or film genre. Oddly enough for me, And I say it's funny because I'm not into that genre anymore, but it was horror when I was in high school. Really? Yeah. And I like do not watch horror anymore because as I've gotten older, I've just become more of a baby about it. But one of my high school best friends and I, we kind of had this weird competition and it was very friendly, but to show each other the most, you know, messed up movie. So we try and find them the most messed up movie, which like brings you down like a rabbit hole of like older films and that branches off. And then all of a sudden you get to where you are today (laughs) and it's just like a monster. So yeah, it's, 
it's always interesting to see what where were some of start those because i had a very similar trajectory horror was was early on for me and just like you my friends and i my small group of movie friends we were always trying to push like the most messed up movie we can watch what were what was like was there one that broke you finally or like <laughs> yes it was cannibal holocaust <laughs> She lent it to me. Uh, so the very first one that kind of like, it broke me in the best possible way was Funny Games. And I was like, whoa, this is to me like that's I love that movie. And it's weird because I kind of consider it a weird comfort movie because I've seen it so often, <laughs> even though it's like absolutely like disastrous. But I love it. And I love the feeling that it gave me the sense of dread. But with Cannibal Holocaust, I was like, I need several months to recover <laughs> mentally from this this is not yeah. okay that i didn't like that type of stuff i don't like i like the more i guess cerebral stuff without sounding like a dick no i mean i i'm right there with you <laughs> yeah cannibal holocaust for me too was rough because of all the animal stuff was really like horrific yes yeah, yeah. i can't do that <laughs> but what about billy wilder like when did you start noticing his films or what do you remember the first film you saw of his yeah it's cliche uh, well Actually, I was about to say Sunset Boulevard, but I think it was Some Like It Hot. In fact, I know it was Some Like It Hot, mm-hmm. um, which I think I saw with my grandparents for the first time. My grandparents lived very close to us growing up, so my sister and I were always over there, and my grandma always had Turner Classic movies on. And so I have really fond memories of being there and just watching all these great older films. And um, yeah, Some Like It Hot is one I probably saw multiple times with them. Strangely enough, I haven't sat down and like rewatched it recently, but I don't think about that movie. I just like I'm sure I'm sure it's mm-hmm. great. I'm sure like it's because it's probably been at least ten years since I've seen it. But I just like have no urge to go back to some like it hot for some weird reason, probably to my own detriment. When I first like started taking him seriously, or not seriously, but like really noticing Billy Wilder was Sunset Boulevard, and that was what yeah. I discovered pretty early on. I mean, because you know the name and you know like the quotes from the film, ready for my close up, Mister Demille, and all of that. But like I think I came to it through David Lynch because yeah, my uh, junior year of high school. Uh, my film I actually had a film and English teacher and he turned me on to David Lynch and so I became immediately obsessed and I I think I learned that David Lynch was a big fan of Sunset Boulevard so I saw Sunset Boulevard and that blew my mind as someone who like kind of had trouble getting into older films when I was younger like there was kind of like a barrier up and a lot of older sort of classic films took me longer to real truly appreciate but they kind of felt kind of like stagey to me and like inert and stuff and I don't Mm -hmm. feel that way now but at that time, it was uh, kind of a barrier. And I remember seeing Sunset Boulevard and thinking, first of all, how strange it was, like inherently weird and strange. And then also just how modern it felt. I'm like, this movie could be made today and it would still feel fresh and everything. So I fell in love with Sunset Boulevard. And then from there, it was just kind of like, I saw The Apartment. I saw Ace in the Hole. Ace in the Hole, you know, one of my favorites yeah. too. And saw kind of his big stuff. Everything I've seen, I've liked. I feel like he's not necessarily a director that has like a very distinct style maybe i'm wrong i know you're like really into him i haven't seen everything but i feel like he kind of adapts himself to like what he's making but this was one yeah yeah so this was one that was on my watch list for a long time the last weekend so that's uh why i picked it because i was like i need to just finally sit down and watch this movie yeah no that's fair i think and i'm sure we'll get into it but i think wilder's films are a good gateway to get into older films and i kind of have a similar trajectory 
My parents were really big into Westerns, so I watched a lot of those growing up. When it came to seeking out my own older films, we have a in Canada a, a TV channel called TVO, and they used to have a program called Saturday Night at the Movies, and they only played older stuff. And when I was starting to get into films, I would watch the older stuff. And then, oddly enough, the film that got me into it was Breakfast at ah. Tiffany's. And then I got into Audrey Hepburn, which led me to Sabrina, which led me to Billy right, Wilder. He did Sabrina. That's right. I told. I always forget he did that. Yeah. So Sabrina was the first, and then from there it was just a sliding scale of stuff. But yeah, I I also agree. I don't think he has a directing style because first and foremost for me, I think he's a writer, so he has a writing style. But his directing style definitely adapts to whatever he's writing. Yeah, I love that. Do you have a favorite Wilder? I think it's Sunset Boulevard. Yeah, I think that's probably the one I've seen the most, but it's hard to pick a favorite of his. Because as you also said, I have never seen anything of his I didn't like. There's ones I like more than others, but I don't dislike any of his films because it's very hard to. Were you there for Film Club when we did A Foreign Affair? No, I have seen it though. Yeah, that was like, that that was one where like someone suggested it and I had never even heard of it. The And Marlena Dietrich is in it and stuff. And I saw it and I was, I was blown mm-hmm. away like this lesser known Wilder film, how great it still was. Oh yeah. He's just such a great yeah. writer and it's always good when he's doing his own material and even when he's adapting, but when he's doing his own, there's like the love behind it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to get into the tagline for the film. The reason why I do the taglines, and I kind of mentioned this in the last couple episodes, is just because I find taglines funny. They're not used or like parent as much anymore. But, you know, from this era of film, they're always overly dramatic. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to read this one and then we can get into some facts on the film. Tagline for The Lost Weekend is, how daring can the screen dare to be? No adult man or woman can risk missing the startling frankness of The Lost Weekend. Love it. Right? Straight to the point. Doesn't give anything away from the film at all. I would have absolutely no idea what this film was about. (laughs) But it's attracting. Some facts about the film here. There's a lot. There's a lot about this film because it's there's kind of a bit of drama with the production because of the subject matter. But I kind of just narrowed it down to what I found to be the most interesting. So the liquor industry in offered Paramount $5 million not to release this film. And this is $5 million in 1945. Wow. Now I'm reading this off the top of my head. I should have probably done <laughs> what the conversion is because I assume that's like an insane that's amount of money. Lo- it's so much. <laughs> yeah. And then Billy Wilder's quoted as saying that he would have accepted it had they been offering it to him. <laughs> And I was, he probably was like, yeah, okay, I won't make it for that much money. Yeah, he probably was only going to get a small cut. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> As part of his character research, Ray Milan checked himself into the drunk ward at the Bellevue Hospital. I don't know if it's actually called the drunk ward, but through my research, all sources were calling it the drunk ward. So maybe that's what it was called back in the day. But it got so intense that he escaped, still wearing his robe and in his bare feet. And he was spotted by the cops and returned to the hospital because they thought he was an inmate there. Uh, or not an inmate, but a patient. And it took him a while to explain that he actually wasn't a patient. He was just an actor. <laughs> My God. That that fact comes up a lot. And it's not that I don't believe it. It's more so that I feel like it's maybe spruced up a bit. Could be. By like the production company. Yeah, I could see it. To add some authenticity. Yeah. 
Yeah. So Wilder randomly picked up this book by Charles Art Jackson on a train ride from New York to L.A. And by the time he reached Hollywood, he knew he wanted to adapt it. So he contacted Brackett right away to get the rights to it. So that's interesting. He just picked it up on a whim there. And it ties into the fact that after making Double Indemnity with Raymond Chandler, he wanted to write about his experience working with him. And he made the film like as a way of explaining the condition to Chandler himself. So if you do listen to the previous episode with Aaron Strand, Aaron actually gives quite a bit of detail about Raymond Chandler's alcoholism and his writing work on Double Indemnity. So I highly recommend checking that out because he's better at explaining it than I am. (laughs) Last two facts here. So in the book, Don Burnham is actually closeted and he drank to run away from that. But due to the code, they were forced to admit it from the film. Uh, So they instead just turned him into a struggling writer, which I think is absolutely hilarious. (laughs) But that's the the first thing that they, they're like, that seems like it's on par with being closeted in the 40s. The last fact is Wilder became the first person ever to win an Oscar for both Best Director and Best Screenplay for the same film. For me, I'd say it's well-deserved. Absolutely. If you're ready, I'm ready to get into some Lost Weekend. Let's do it. Okay, so the first thing I wanted to discuss was the character archetypes that you are found in Lost Weekend. So we have Don as like a troubled man who needs to be saved, Helen as the mother type, and Nat, the bartender, as like the sardonic voice of reason. To me, they're very distinct characters who don't have, apart from Don, that much depth to them because it's his story. Helen especially, who's played by Jane Wyman, is just kind of, you know, this very accepting woman of everything he does. Very accepting. And she's very motherly. And then Nat, who's a bartender, who's probably plays a bigger role than the brother in this as just kind of pushing him to stop and he just kind of begging him to leave his bar, <laughs> which is interesting. He's the owner of this bar and he's just telling, he's begging this guy to just go home because for some reason he also sees something in him. So I was wondering how you felt about the secondary characters in this film. Yeah, no, I like, they are archetypes. I think the Jane Weinman character is, like you said, pretty one note but she does such a great job because she's Jane Weinman of like kind of lifting her off the page a little bit. Um, but yeah, I like the bartender a lot and I like the brother, the guy who plays the brother. And it's funny, you, you're talking about the book. My first thought when I saw them together in the apartment, I was like, oh wait, are they gay? Before I found out they were brothers. So I yeah. just wonder if that was kind of a, I don't know, but but God, what a brother he is. <laughs> that is, that's like brother of the year right there. But no, I, I like I like all the supporting characters and I like, uh, God, her name is escaping me right now but the woman that plays like the prostitute too she's great yeah gloria it's great it's it's kind of like what i liked so much about it is the highs and lows of his life right because you have someone like her who's on the lower you know she's a prostitute at least in the way that the film is coloring her from like you know he's mm-hmm. she's a lower being and then you have jane wyman who he met at like the opera i like the the sort of two extremes of like his life in the bar and the people he knows there and then the people he knows outside of that. I thought was pretty cool. Yeah. And because if this had been just a straightforward story from the moment we meet him until his weekend, we wouldn't really get why he does this, how he's able to drink. So we get the flashbacks. 
And because his previous film was Double Indemnity, which is also told through a lot of flashbacks, I was wondering how you feel about that device, especially as I think it works when done well. And I think it's a device that's used in older films and not so much today. People don't like it. I always hear complaints about flashbacks. I think it works perfectly in this because it's not overly done and you need it, but we don't need his entire life. We just need those moments that light him up to this, this weekend in particular. So I was wondering how you felt about that. Yeah, you know, I'm kind of like indifferent on flashbacks in terms of, I know sometimes they're the kind of thing where like some people feel about flashbacks the way that they feel about narration, which is like, oh, it's supposed to be like a big no-no. And if you have to use use narration then you're doing something wrong i think a a well-placed flashback is good and i do like the way that this film uses them mostly there's just like that section of the movie where you kind of get the backstory and how he meets jane wyman and everything like that but it worked for me it worked for me it never it never felt like it was trying to fill in the gaps of like what we weren't getting because it is such an intensely focused like character study that i thought the flashbacks just enriched everything so for me they work how about you I, I think they worked, especially with the Jane Weinman uh, or Helen and him meeting yeah. her, because you kind of need to understand her character beyond where they're at in their relationship now. Because if you just f- see where he is and how deep he is in it, you wouldn't necessarily understand why is she still here? Because her his brother is just like, yeah, fuck him. Bye. <laughs> I'm leaving. I'm going away for the weekend. And like, fair enough, because... You know, he's been trying, but she sticks by him. So you just kind of need to understand more of her character and just how accepting she is. And for some reason, she loves the man. So, yeah, I completely agree. Wilder said that he wanted to specifically unglamorize Don as a character. Not that he's glamorized in the book, but he just wanted to make it sure that this is not someone that you're supposed to look up to. But you can sympathize with him because he's just a regular guy. You know, he doesn't seem, he's obviously not very successful. You know, we have not seen him really write at all, even though he is described as a writer and he seems to be making money enough to, you know, afford his apartment. So he wanted to make an unglamorous drunk who wastes his life and just who is very sad. And that appealed to Billy's imagination. I feel like it's two things with Don. One, he is very charming when he is not 17 shots deep in rye. <laughs> um, but he does have a charming streak, but it's also the way Ray Milan plays him. And I don't know if it's because I'm a huge fan of his and I've seen so many of his films that I am immediately am rooting for him. But I, I'd like to think it's just his performance and the way he kind of, you kind of just want to give him a hug and hope for the best, but you're also want to give him a hard shake and just be like, you really don't need to be doing this at all. So I was wondering how you felt about Don just as if you sympathize with him or you just didn't care. I think you're spot on. I think a different actor, this this character could have been completely insufferable and you would have just been so removed from it. And I think you're spot on with Ray Milland of like, He's a naturally charming guy. He has that great transatlantic accent. Like, yes. You know, I, when I think of him, I think of like Hitchcock or something. Like, he's, he's very posh and, yeah. uh, and just likable. And I think it, it is, he's the perfect actor to play something like this because you believe, you believe him as the character, as like a writer that's tortured, that's going through this whole ordeal. But then he's charming and likable enough that I feel like keeps the whole thing afloat. So I, I really think it's it's down to like the casting. It's it's perfect. Yeah. And Wilder specifically wanted him. And I think there was talks of, you know, maybe having 
a Cary Grant-esque character and not that I mean in my opinion Cary Grant can do anything but sometimes a star can be distracting in something that's so serious and sometimes you kind of need someone not that he's a lesser star but he's not Cary Grant well it's interesting yeah I I kind of like maybe because they're both like Hitchcock boys but I like sometimes lump them into the same camp of like these posh (laughs) like I mean, but so many people of that time, that's the whole thing is people were posh unless you were like Bogart or James Cagney or something. But like, yeah, Yeah. they totally, totally. I I think um, Ray Milland is interesting because he he's definitely a name, like you said, but he never was like this unless I'm mistaken, which I could be. But he was never like a big deal star, especially in the way that like Cary Grant was. No, he definitely I mean, he was big, but he was not a Cary Grant. And like, I think that's a testament to if you walk around today. I would say if you said both names, to 10 people, <laughs> nine people would know Cary Grant and maybe two would That's know That's probably even generous, I think. You know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and this, you just happened to talk to 10 film people. And even then, they still might not know who Ray Milan is, uh, which is unfortunate because he has been in so many great films. I think the first film I ever saw him in was Dial M for Murder as the husband. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So good. Honestly, probably same now that I think of it. But I always think of him, I think my favorite of his is um, the Fritz Lang film, Ministry oh, of Fear. you know what? I, that has been on my watch list for years. I need... <laughs> oh my God. I I don't know. For some people, some people kind of hate on it. Like certain aspects of it, they find a little, maybe a little corny. But I, when I saw that movie, it was one of those where you're like, oh, I am wow. obsessed. That's probably my favorite. Fritz Lang, which is, wild because m was my favorite fritz line for so long but ministry of fears surpassed that for me it's not necessarily the better film like m is probably better but i definitely love ministry of fear highly well, recommended i don't know if it's on anything high praise. Right now. No, that just moved it to the top of my watch list find it and hopefully you don't hate well, it you know what's interesting too about him like later in his career he kind of like was doing cheap exploitation movies and stuff he's i know he's famously in a movie called like the man with x-ray eyes or something like that yeah I think in like the 70s, he was just in a bunch of really weird, cheap movies. There's one noir, like in color, one that I saw of his, that's a later film of his. And if I think of it, I'll put it in the show notes later. But it's like, it's weird because you're seeing him as an older man who's obviously like kind of aging out of the roles that he's playing. But he just does such a great job. It's sort of like when, you know, Mitchum and... Jimmy Stewart were still playing the men who were, and even Gary Cooper, who's playing, like, getting someone like an yeah. Audrey Hepburn, <laughs> even though he's, like, 40 years older than her. And you're like, well, yeah, I kind of see yeah, it. <laughs> I know. You know, it's a big trend. We kind of touched upon Jane Weinman, who, it's it's funny because in my research, Wilder wanted Catherine Hepburn for it, and she agreed. Then it conflicted. And I'm just trying to picture... Catherine Hepburn taking such a backseat to anyone. You know, she would have totally dominated, as she should, because she's perfect, in my opinion. But I can't see her, even if she tried not to, just be like the quiet girlfriend in the background. Jane Wyman is a great screen presence, but she knows <laughs> my first thought was to say she knows her place, which is very bad. <laughs> I know. But she knows that she is supposed to be not the scene stealer because it is the Don Burnham show. So I don't know how you feel about Jane Wyman's performance as kind of giving, as you said, 
a little bit of life to a one note character. Yeah, no, I think she's great. And I'm having trouble imagining Catherine Hepburn because Catherine Hepburn, like you said, I've never really seen her not take the lead. Um, but also, I feel like this character is so... Again, I'm trying not to insult Catherine Hepburn because I love her so much. But this role is warm, and I don't always associate warm warmth with Catherine Hepburn. She's a little bit, she's feistier, like she's more powerful. She's more yes. sort of like dominant. And this character is, I, I, I don't think, I don't know how believable she would have been in this because she would have just thrown Ray Milan like out the window or something, like instead of like continuing to nurture him. <laughs> <laughs> Very much so. It would have just been a whole, they'd had to rewrite the role, I think, to fit her. Again, she is someone who is such a great actress. And, but when she's playing softer, it's still kind of with yeah. a snark and there's no snark to this character at all. So I definitely think Jane Wyman is the better, better choice, obviously, yeah. for this role. And you specifically. Know, I haven't, I actually haven't seen her in that many films. I mean, the big one, obviously, that everybody knows is All That Heaven Allows, which is such a great movie. And she's so good in it. Yeah. In fact, I think this was like the earliest film I've seen of hers because usually I'm used to her like seeing her slightly more like middle age. So to see her younger, she's she's so good in it. She's really good. Yeah. What can you say? Billy Wilder knew how to cast him. <laughs> exactly. I think, you know, he knows his characters in yeah. and out. So and he was big in the industry even before he was a director. So he knew who could bring the best life to his words. Was it was it Wilder that had the he had something under the viewfinder of his camera that said like what would Lubitsch do or something like that? Was that him? I think it was. I know he was a really big fan in because <laughs> I've been reading his biography and he's really big on Lubitsch and same and he has really big beef with Mitchell oh, Gleason. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever seen any of his stuff, but they he <laughs> hates him. And so reading that is funny to me because I kind of associate both of them together because they kind of have similar-ish films. Wilder's a bit edgier, but it's so funny. I love when reading about old directors and yeah. their fights because they're so <laughs> yeah, petty. They're so petty. <laughs> We're like, that, that's something that you can't really do in this day and age of social media is like people aren't really catty towards each other the way that they used to be. Like if even if you look back at um like Bergman talking shit about Godard or whatever, you know, everyone, you know, there was, yes. there was some juicy <laughs> stuff going on. I, that's one of my favorite things that I see on Instagram quite often is the stills of him just talking shit about Godard. <laughs> and he just is like, does not hold back. And I'm like, you know what? I really feel yeah. what you're saying as much as I don't, I like quite a bit of his stuff, but I Godard the person I also yeah. want to fight. So <laughs> RIP, but <laughs> Um, that's fine yeah maybe a little bit too long Honestly, yes. that <laughs> decades too long <laughs> wow that's good now <laughs> i'm gonna switch gears here i'm gonna talk about the way this film looks because upon re-watching this i really noticed the way the look the film looks visually and the cinematographer he worked with on this film john sites he's worked with quite a few times his look is quite different each time um so he's and the reason why wilder kept working with him is because he he always was willing to listen to like notes and adapt to you know the screenplay as opposed to being like this is the way i shoot things you're just gonna you hire me for my look and for this film specifically and i don't know if this is just the film school in me but as i was watching it and the story progresses and he gets darker and deeper into the hole i kind of felt a lot of 
German expressionist look to it. And I was like, oh, this is kind of like a German expressionism film, but like in the 40s. And just the way he was lit and the shots, and there's a specific shot when he leaves the hospital and he goes to buy the bottle of rye at probably like it's 8 a.m. And it's just his face and it kind of looks like a white orb and it's like black behind him and his face is floating. And I'm just going to quickly read a little quote from uh, Wilder, why he wanted that look. He said he didn't want any soft focus photography here. So no bat lot, New York street scenes, no generic Hollywood sets. He wanted to make a picture that was somehow both raw and polished, a work of art so involving that audiences immersed in the harsh world he created for the world. He just wanted to have a the wretchedness of a man's interior life. The way they did that was they caked his face in like chalky makeup. It's just so well done. And it, it just reminded me how much I love German expressionism. And it's weird because I was doing, again, throughout my research, I didn't see anyone make that comparison. So I don't know. I, I heard you kind of agree. I don't know if you kind of felt that too with the look or if I'm way off base. <laughs> I think it's so far off base. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> No, it's funny. I literally have a note here. I said shot like a horror movie. No, yes. I completely agree because agree, it does have the really intense shadows as the movie progresses, especially once you get into like that detox center. It's pretty horrific. And you're in full on expressionist mode of like, it's it's a nightmare. It's like a nightmare on film, especially when that guy wakes up in the middle of the night and he's like screaming and he has to be dragged out and stuff. I, and then of course, I think the the perfect example of your point is like when he's home and there's the bat and there's the mouse and it's like full on expressionism. Like, so no, I, I completely agree. And I think the cool thing about it is it creeps in because it starts off and it's shot very cleanly. It's shot very cleanly and like, um, economically like it's shot well but it's not calling attention to itself and then as the film mm-hmm. goes on and he kind of spirals it gets more and more stylized so i could i totally agree what it's funny because the very first time i watched this what i remembered the most was the scene of him walking along the new york streets to find the pawn shops which is probably the most brightly lit scene and the only really brightly lit scene in that film and then on this watch, I was like, oh, this film is very dark visually, but as you said, kind of in a horror way. And I definitely want to talk about the bat and mouse scene and just how well that's done. And, you know, obviously it's just a bat on strings, <laughs> <laughs> but it's so well shot. And you, this, the horror on his face, you know, you just don't even notice you know how kind of cheaply done the the bad is and just that scene in the blood and it's it takes you out into a whole new film and you're like oh okay this is dark yeah (laughs) yes i completely agree it it caught me off guard because i I have seen the poster where it has like the silhouette of the bat on it so i knew that there was going to be a bat Mm -hmm. involved in some way but i think i was under the presumption that this film was a little bit more kind of like um him living with it or like him kind of hiding it from other people so when you open the movie and literally they kind of catch him sneaking this bottle that's been hanging out this window and stuff it's already set and i feel like it is such a cheap uh comparison but it's kind of a requiem for a dream of the 40s type Mm -hmm. uh, feel of like you're in some really nightmarish stuff there and but what you were saying too like yeah the bat looks fake but like i think Again, I know it's like limitations of like they couldn't get a trained bat in there. They didn't want to get a trained bat to like. Yeah. But like, I think it works <laughs> because, too, he's like, it's this fever dream. And so the 
the sort of artificiality of it, I think, works well with it. Oh, yeah. And his performance throughout the film is great, but that scene specifically is likely why he won the Oscar, because it's not overdone. And I could be stone cold sober, and I would also scream like that (laughs) if I saw a bat in my house eating a mouse in my wall. Yeah, It's just so well done. And I love that scene. I forgot that the poster has a bat on it. I don't know if that's a good thing or not. Uh, but it's it's funny that you say, yeah, it starts off where when I first saw it, I didn't really know what it was about uh, other than he was an alcoholic. But I was like, you watch older films and they kind of treat alcoholism as a joke. So you kind of assume that's the way they're going to go about it, especially the way it opens with, as you said, the bottle outside the window, which I think is a great trick. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if I was that deep in alcohol, I might try that too. Um, <laughs> but it's, the way it descends is not too quickly, but it's not slow either. I think it's the perfect pace, which I think, again, is just a testament to Wilder's writing and Brackett's writing as well, because he, they co-wrote it together. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah, they just never rush anything, and everything is merited, I think, in the way it progresses. Yeah. And I'll get to the end after, because I think that's an important. It kind of shifts there in the ending, but... Another thing I wanted to discuss was for this film, you know, Wilder insisted on having it look as real as possible. So Paramount wanted to just shoot it on their lot. They're like, we already have New York streets built here. We specifically have that so that people don't have to go to New York and shoot there and depend on the lighting. But he insisted on going to New York for those shots. And then he insisted on having like a full on Greenwich Village apartment built on the lot uh, because he wanted to be able to shoot from each angle within the apartment. I just assumed it was a real apartment they were shooting in because it looks so well done and he spends so much time there. So I think it was important for them to have that real set. I don't know how you, if you noticed anything about his living quarters and if it really mattered to you. No, yeah, it seemed more, much more lived in than a lot of films of the time. Like a lot of um, interiors feel stagey, but like I've, sometimes that's like the charm of older Hollywood movies is that everything kind of does feel like a set, but this did feel like very lived in. So I feel like good job on production design. And, you know, I think it's just when you're at that point in your career, you could just ask kind of for whatever. And Paramount was like, well, okay, fine. You know, we like, we have these things already, but if you insist on going to New York, uh, fine. And it just took them like weeks to shoot that one scene because the lighting was just so awful. <laughs> really? The bat, the scene with the bat? No, the scene where he's walking uh, along to find the pawn oh, shops. Oh, gotcha. So that was like filmed. It's weird because it kind of looks like it's just green screen. And I'm sure there's parts of it that are, but he is walking along the streets of New York, finding all the pawn shops. Yeah, you have those classic like rear projection shots because it's like, I know, you know so many mo- films use this because it's hard to keep the dis- to keep the actor in focus if they're walking and the camera's mm-hmm. like following, you know, in front of them or tracking them or something. So yeah, there's a lot of that rear projection, but you can, yeah, you can tell he's also just like on the streets of New York and it did feel like New York and not so much like a back lot, which was nice. Another point that I noticed on this this watch was the score, which I don't think I fully remembered the first time. And it just might have been that I it had been a while since I last watched it. But so this is a claim, and I don't know how true this is, but they claim that this is the very first film that used the theremin as on the score. And then you hear it so on in like a lot of sci-fi films after that. I'm like, I don't know if that's true, but... I guess they can claim it if they want. Uh, but I noticed it a lot yeah. in this time, especially again, as 
things get darker and it's kind of off-putting but i think that's the point yeah. where you're like oh this is this is weird and it did feel very sci-fi i think it's because we always kind of associate that that instrument with that genre so i don't know if you noticed it that much the score or if it kind of blended in with what you were watching it's so funny because i literally have a note that says just theremin because <laughs> i it was, yeah. <laughs> it was such a theremin overload that i was like wow that's a choice but no i mean yeah i mean look for the time, especially if it is a, new, a newer kind of instrument, it's great. It works perfectly because it's off-putting. It almost sounds like a, a voice, right? That's It almost sounds like an off-key voice that's doing something. Um, if you haven't heard theremin before, I'm sure it was probably like kind of an alarming sound. But yeah, you're right. Like now mm-hmm. we associate it with like 50s and 60s like B sci-fi movies and stuff. And it has a whole cult of its own. But um, I think it worked for the movie. You know, again, if it was made now, yeah. no, like it wouldn't be a good choice. But <laughs> for this time, like I've I've never really seen it used in a drama this way. So that was cool. It's interesting that you said it kind of has a voice because I it's like it kind of sounds like a ghost haunting yes. him. So I think that's I have to assume that was the point, and it does work for this. But I I can't imagine it being used in a drama today <laughs> without it, people being like, I am so far removed now from what's happening that I can only focus on that. There was a film in the film club that we were talking about, and the score came up, and everyone was saying it was off-putting. Was it last week? Yeah, I think it was for. Um... Oh, Wise yeah, Blood. Wise Blood. Yeah. Wise Blood. yeah. Where everyone was like, I hate the score. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> I mean, it's it's also a choice when where you're like, oh, okay, you went there yeah. for some reason. I don't know why, but sure. Well, it's, it's funny for this film because it's Miklos Rosa, who is one of the sort of key like stock composers of the time. Like he just churned mm-hmm. out score after score after score. And I feel like a lot of movies from this era have really bland scores, I feel like, or they're just they're just yeah. sort of telegraphing stuff, but they're not like you can't listen to them on their own and like appreciate the musical qualities. Like they're just using to like prop up the film. So what I did like about this one was the theremin was a choice, worked well in the movie, and it was a it was a statement. I just wish that they could have used the theremin in Ray Milan's other film, The Uninvited, where it would have been much more uh, appropriate. <laughs> yes. Oh my god. I don't know why I didn't didn't mention The Uninvited before this. Do you like that? Do you That's like That's another it? great movie. Do you not no, like I it? I love it. Oh, okay, okay. I was like I thought you liked, you know, haunted movies. I do. And <laughs> I love The Uninvited. It's so good. Wait, who's he paired with in that movie? It's uh Oh, it's Ruth Hussey. And that's that uh-huh. film. Uh, that's where Stella by Starlight comes from. That song. That was so when I when I saw that movie, I oh, was yeah? blown away. I'm like, wait, that song is from this movie? Like, cool. That's like a standard. Yeah, I've only seen it the once. But Lewis Allen, who directed that, has directed a lot of like really good sleeper hits. Like, I don't know if you've seen the film Suddenly with uh, Sinatra. Oh, no. uh, it's interesting because it starts off for you like oh god this is horrible because it's just kind of weird in camp but then it turns uh and it's very good and he did desert fury with burt lancaster oh, so add those. that's an automatic love for me <laughs> so you're a big burt uh, fan because right? he's my yeah. favorite yeah he's my husband <laughs> <laughs> love it did you did you catch burt in this film <laughs> just kidding um i wish i'm gonna have to do a full burt month he's probably gonna be my first actor that i do I love it. It'd be like a full Burt year. Yeah, for just me. do a year of Burt. Yeah. Like, I'm unfollow, unsubscribe. <laughs> oh, no. you know what's interesting? Un- the Uninvited came out just a year before the Lost Weekend. Oh yeah, it is 1944. Yeah. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, Ray Milland, 
I hope that, you know, if people are, I've only seen him in a few things, they definitely check out. I would definitely recommend, like I said, Ministry of Fear and the Uninvited would be the tops, probably. But he also did like a lot of like noirs as well that are really good. He has a great face for it. Yeah, exactly. One of the last points I wanted to touch upon was the ending. So even on this watch, I kind of find it to be sudden. And I guess it was more with reading about it and Wilder's intentions with it that I am a bit more lenient on it. He said he didn't want it to be a happy-go-lucky, like all of a sudden he's changed. And he explicitly says that Don Burnham says, I'm going to try. And I think not played up enough that you fully notice that he says he's just going to try because the way it ends, they're both smiling and you're just like, oh, is he cured all of a sudden? Because he was just, you know, seeing a bat and a mouse two seconds ago. So, (laughs) but, you know, with him talking about it, I'm like, okay, he's not wrong. He is just saying he's trying like tomorrow he could just, you know, go right back to it. But I don't know how you feel about the way it's presented in the film. If, you know, without that background knowledge. I think, Ultimately, it's kind of hard. If this film was made today, I don't think it would spiral quite as as deep as it does. Um, mm-hmm. I think it would have been a mistake to kill him in the end because it would have been a little bit too of like a cautionary tale kind of thing of like, now kids, listen, don't, you know, it's like, but, but also yeah. like a forced happy ending would have also been false. So Honestly, I think it's a pretty nice note because it's like in this moment, he's going to try. We don't know where he's going to be tomorrow. And that's kind of the best you can say. I think the other two extremes, I think, are too much. So for me, it worked. If they had killed him, it would have been kind of like an ad. It would have felt like it was like an ad for, you know, anti-drinking. As opposed to just being like the way it ends and the way he presents the film is just more so like as accurate as you can get it at the time through the code portrayal of an addiction. And I think it does a really good job of that without, it doesn't glamorize it, but it doesn't, you know, make him out to be a horrible person. He's just someone with who needs help. I don't know if there are any other points that you want to touch upon about the film itself. I have one note on on just like sort of the the visual grammar. There's I, I so love people like Wilder that can do these tricks that are so simple, but so effective. Like, for example, when he first goes to the bar in the film and he has just that first shot and then he has more and the passage of time is like showing the the rings of the glass on the bar. Yeah, it's such an elegant yes. way to do it because I feel like so many other people would just cross dissolve how many glasses have passed, but that would have been false because, like, obviously the bartender is going to clear the glass and like exactly. he could have been like drunker. But I feel like the the most elegant way to do it and and poetic too is just like the rings of condensation on the bar. Those like little touches like that are like God. I yeah, that's one of my favorite shots. I love that, and I especially noticed it this time where I was like, yeah. That's, as you said, you know, any bartender would have cleared those many, that many shots, especially because they just don't want to see, have the other patrons see how many shots they've funneled to this guy. (laughs) So this is like the best way of showing that he said he was supposed to be gone at 6 p.m. And now it's whatever time. And he's like 10, you know, shots deep. One thing actually about that, because it's, um, it was $10 that he took. That was supposed to go towards the housekeeper. And this I did read that that equals $160 roughly at this time. Because I, I remember like being like, this man's buying a lot of shots for $10. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> like that would be like one or two, depending on what type of bar you go to yeah. nowadays. Yeah. So it makes more sense <laughs> that it's that much money. And he still had money left over after that. I was like, wow, different yeah, time. Such a different time, <laughs> dear God. <laughs> Actually, one quick thing I did want to n- note as well, because this is shot and released, or it's released in 1945, there's no mention of the war. Uh, I was reading an interview with Alex Cox, who was discussing that and how it's you know, upon rewatch, you kind of notice it when you realize what year it is. And it actually, because it takes place, you know, three years before they, he kind of made it out to be that it wasn't during the wartime. And that's why there's no mention of it. Ah. So I just thought that was interesting. Yeah. I didn't even think that didn't cross my mind, but yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah. It didn't cross my mind until Aaron actually mentioned it in the last episode with Devil Indemnity that it also takes place kind of at the same time. And there's no mention of the war either. It's just kind of its own, you know, universe that it's placed in. Yeah. It was interesting that Alice Cox was talking about it. He's talked about this film a lot. I guess it's one of his favorites. And when it was released by masters of cinema on Blu-ray, he did like an intro to it. So he talks about that film a lot. Oh, cool. And if you're an Alex Cox fan, at all i'm like very hot and cold on his work but he's he's such a like the stuff i love i really love and then there's stuff like walker where i'm like uh okay but like yeah but he's he's such an ally to film and he's like he's one of those people that's out there keeping stuff alive and you know he's he's great he's like he had that show in the uk Mm -hmm. i think it was called movie drome or something like that yeah he's such a big movie nerd and those are my favorite type of directors it's like even like this is a conversation from the film club that we had, but Del Toro, who I'm not the biggest fan of as a director, but I like him as a person because he's such a movie nerd. And I would be like, I would hang out with you. I don't necessarily want to watch your movies, but (laughs) we could be friends type of thing. So (laughs) Alex Cox is so interesting too, because he lives, well, I don't know if it's his primary residence, but he has a cabin in the woods. That's literally like the size of like, it's like a 10 by 10 cabin or something like that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh. Eccentric character. That sounds, yeah, it sounds pretty accurate of, of him. And an interesting <laughs> career, too. Interesting career of, like, being a wonderkind, kind of, and then very quickly, like, mm-hmm. petering out and just kind of, you know, became more of, like, a film curator and presenter than filmmaker. Just interesting guy. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like my dream yeah. career right there, to be honest. Safe. Just like, I'm going to give you two good movies, and then I'm just going to go do my own yeah, thing. Making a lifetime of movies sounds exhausting. <laughs> yeah, it's too much. <laughs> I want to move to the end portion of the show, which I call end credits. So I ask each guest the same two questions. I don't know if you had a chance to think about it or if you just wanted to answer on the spot, but the very first question is, if someone comes up to you and says, hey, Greg, I've never watched a Billy Wilder film in my life. Where should I start? Would you recommend The Lost Weekend? No. If so, why? And <laughs> if not, which which one would you recommend and why? I wouldn't recommend The Lost Weekend uh, just because I feel like it's a, uh, it's a great film of his. But I think that it's, I just don't know that it's like the best entry point because it is so bleak. It's, it's, you know, it's an upsetting watch. Yeah. Um, this, especially for, you know, like alcoholism runs in my family too. So it's like the kind of thing where like for its time, it handles it so well. Like I was actually really impressed 
considering it's 1945 and it's a paramount movie the, yeah. the maturity of which it was handled was like really great but obviously by today's standards it's probably like a little overblown anyway i'm i'm <laughs> i'm off on a tangent i wouldn't recommend this i would recommend it's as cliche as it as it is i would recommend sunset boulevard over something like even the apartment or some like a hot because i think that sunset boulevard really does capture like the accessibility of wilder and also the ex- eccentricity i think it's like it's a perfect mm-hmm. balance in that movie like that's such an engrossing story um so i'd probably recommend something like that uh, i guess the apartment also is like a pretty good entry point but yeah not this this, this would be after you've seen a couple then i would say the last weekend yes you too i i 100 agree yeah i I mean, I've been obviously giving the same answer, but each week. So my my recommendation would also be Sunset Boulevard. I think that Lost Weekend, not that I don't, I mean, it depends on your personality. It it might put you off yeah. or it might just be like, oh, this is the type of director he is. And then you go into his other things and realize, oh, he's not this type of dark all the time. I think Sunset Boulevard perfectly, you know, encompasses everything he has to offer and i think that's why to me it's the best entry point and from there you can get if you're like oh i want the more comedy side you can go that route if i want the darker you can go that route i would recommend going all routes (laughs) but if you have a perfect you know specified you know genre that you like he has everything that you could ever ask for except for really sci-fi i don't sci-fi he hasn't really touched but that's true I guess this is this is kind of sci-fi because of the pyramid. <laughs> <In some way. laughs> yeah, <laughs> like yeah, this is a sci-fi movie. I'm just gonna pass it off as one. I think you're right in in saying that this movie could be off-putting for someone for the first time because it is so intense and downbeat and stuff. And I think I know the two other films you've done this month are Sunset Boulevard and Ace in the Hole. And I think those films are also mm-hmm. dark, but they're offset by humor. Whereas this film is not yes. funny. <laughs> It's not. No, it's very much yeah. not. Yeah, it would be a disservice to insert unnecessary humor. And yeah, it. agreed. They almost there was a second of like the coat check guy was almost doing like a bit. Yes, I know that it got to the point where I was like, uh, if this is like a second longer, it's going to be too much. <laughs> so he did the right thing of cutting it when he yeah. did. Again, that's just his power. <laughs> just a great writer. Yeah. So the second question is. If you're pairing this film to make a double bill, either for yourself or someone else, what's the second film you're pairing this with? Okay. People are going to feel really terrible after they after this double bill, but I could see no other pairing than leaving Las Vegas. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> which, is, which is the 90s version of The Last Weekend. It's Nicolas Cage goes yeah. on a bender in Vegas, and it somehow ends up being even more depressing than The Last Weekend. <laughs> Yeah, actually. I've only seen that one once because it was like, once is enough, I Same. think. It's a good film, but it's, yeah, some of those films that are super dark where you're like, I don't, I'm not going to just be like, hey, let's watch Leaving Las Vegas because that'll be a fun <laughs> yeah. time. <laughs> yeah, Sam, I've only seen it once. <laughs> that, that was enough for me. The, the film that I paired it with, and I usually just pair it with, with the very first thing that comes to mind. For me, it was joseph losey's the servant oh interesting because it's not someone off on a bender but it's someone who's being pushed into alcohol from like a source that you see externally or as opposed to the lost week is it's like an internal source that's driving him towards that so i think it would be a good 
compare contrast and the servant is like almost 20 years older than it and it's one of my favorite movies so i would just be like you need to also watch the servant because i want you to watch it <laughs> so, it's so good. that was my double interest you know be- before you said it i it makes total sense like the servant does also have a, a similar feel to it it's a yeah it, i can that's like very clear to me that double pairing yeah great movie you know keeping it keeping it black and white and as i said i like to push my favorite movies on anyone who will listen <laughs> you know i even saw some uh fear and loathing in las vegas in this Yes, that that was another one that first came up. But again, I always keep it's only because I, I talk to you in the film club every week, but I have an anti Terry Gilliam <laughs> sentiment. So I can't promote his films. Despite the fact I don't I don't hate that film. I don't even hate him. I just It's the energy, right? That's for another time. That's the yeah, he just stresses me so out. So you won't be doing a month of Gilliam? <laughs> um probably not. <laughs> I think that would break me. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, his, his whole vibe is like love or hate, and like I could see how someone would be like, "This is too chaotic for me." Like I just can't do this. Yes, it's the chaos, and like I usually like, I like. It's stupid to say this because it's kind of an oxymoron, but I like a controlled chaos. Mm. But his is not controlled. It's like I have no idea what's going to happen next, and I guess I. It is. It's kind of like watching a horror film for me. Where I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen, and I don't like oh, this. Interesting. Yeah, I love. I love off the rails chaos in movies. I don't know why. <laughs> I, I gravitate towards. No, that. I. I. I think a lot of people gravitate towards that. I just. I don't know. I'm just getting old. I guess. <laughs> like I just like. Hey, I want to know what's going to happen from start to end. <laughs> Do you know what else I got? Surprise me a little yeah, bit. Yeah. No. I mean, I get. Yeah. <laughs> I also got with the bat and the bleeding w- hole in the wall. I also got Evil Dead Two. <laughs> oh yeah, okay, yeah. I wonder. I don't know. I mean, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. I know Sam Raimi is also a huge movie nerd, yeah. so which sounds like a stupid thing to say because you would assume that most directors are movie nerds, but a lot of them Honestly, are not. You're true. That's right. Yeah, that's correct. And so, a lot of actors, especially, are not. <laughs> yeah, that. <laughs> That's another conversation, but it kind of annoys me when I'm like, how have you never seen certain things? I'm like, how did you get into acting? <laughs> but that's a whole other conversation. So I think we've touched upon most points of the last weekend. I think we did it justice, and I hope that it encourages... Well, I hope that if you got it this far, you've seen the movie. <laughs> Not that there's many spoilers in it, but I hope you've seen it or you're going to watch it. In the show notes... I will be putting links to Seen and Heard, the film club page. I don't know if there's anything else you want to plug that you got coming up. No, no, I think I think that's that's the two. Sounds good. Well, Greg, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having for me. Talking Billy Wilder. Of course, anytime. I hope that you come back. <laughs> I would love to come back. It's it, it'll be awkward if we see each other in film club every week and you're like, I hated that experience. Oh God, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I loved it. Thank you so much. No, of course. Seeing Faces in Movies is an official podcast of the Royal Film Club. It's hosted and edited by Felicia Maroney, intro music by Lamar Walker, and additional help from Darren McGrath. If you like what you heard, let us know at seeingfacesinmovies.com or send us an email at seeingfacesinmovies at gmail.com. And while you're at it, please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to your podcast. 
and stay tuned for our next episode on Sunset Boulevard.